You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. We are this morning in week three of a series called Back to the Book. Back to the Book. Back to, of course, the book, the Bible, God's book. Here's the urgency we saw in week one. Every big step forward spiritually starts with a step back to the book. Every big step forward spiritually starts with a step back to the book. And we, we need to take a step forward spiritually. It's God's plan for us. We like to talk around here about learning Christ together. That's our vision. We want to be a community of people who are learning Christ together. And the foundational passage for that is Ephesians 4, where Paul says, that's not the way you learned Christ together. And what's he talking about? He's talking about a way of learning Christ that doesn't change us. A way of learning Christ that that we stay kind of in the old self, he calls it, the way we used to be before we knew Christ. He says, no, you've got to put on the new self. That's the way you learn Christ. It's a new self. You're changing, becoming more like Christ. We need to take a step forward spiritually, and we do that by the book. We do that as we go back to God's word. Jesus himself, you remember in John 17, he's praying. It's this kind of intimate setting with his disciples the night before he's going to be crucified. and They're in the upper room, and he prays to his father, and he says, Father, sanctify them. Make them holy in the truth. And then he goes on to say, your word is truth. It's God's word that he uses to make us holy, to make us like Christ, to to move us forward, to take the next step spiritually. It starts by turning back to the book. So two weeks ago, we saw that the book gets lost. Even though we have the book, even though we have maybe many copies of the book, even though we come and hear it preached every week, often we, we lose the book. It doesn't affect, it doesn't impact our lives as it should. Last week, we saw that the book has a hero. We saw that God's book is meant first and foremost to bring us to God. That's its chief aim, to bring us to God through his son, Jesus Christ. This week, I want to consider the fact that the book has authority. The book has authority. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are going to focus this morning in 2 Timothy 3, especially on verses 14 to 17. In fact, we're going to focus on those verses uh, for the next four weeks. But I want to start reading at the beginning of the chapter to give you a little bit of the context, the setup to what Paul is going to say here in these words. 2 Timothy 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now let me stop right there for just a second. Because last days, uh, many of us already begin to think, okay, so this is sometime at the end. But for Paul and the New Testament writers, we're in the last days. We already are. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, 
unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. No kidding. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they'll not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But, but as for you, continue in what you've learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray as we get started. Father, I pray now that you would use your word to equip us, to teach us and instruct us, to to challenge us where our our thinking and and hearts have gone astray and to redirect us to the truth and to what is right. Father, we we want to, however imperfectly and however half-heartedly, we know we need to go back to the book. And I pray that you would use your book now to draw us to it to draw us to you, to draw us to to a a desire, a strong desire, an earnest commitment to be changed by your book, conformed to the image of Christ, that we might live in ways that are honoring and pleasing to you. Lord, we need your help. Even as as we look at your word right now, we, we know we have an enemy that would love to do nothing other than distract us from the book turn our hearts away, turn our attention away, to to make us doubt it, to make us question it, to make us uh, consider it irrelevant. So Father, I ask for grace, for me, for every person in here, that you would give our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our attention, just a a laser-like focus on what you want to say to us through your word, the book. So please, Bless now the preaching of your word and use it for your glory and the joy and good of your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Timothy, who gets this letter, is Paul's ministry protege. Paul had taken him along on missionary journeys. He trained him and discipled him. And and at this point, he's left him at the city of Ephesus, at the church there, to pastor and lead it. And so this letter comes from Paul to Timothy, because Timothy needs help, he needs encouragement, he needs instruction. And so in the first part of chapter 3, we read about how it's going to be, how it was for Timothy. Many people 
Summarized by verse 5, they have the appearance of godliness. They deny its power. Paul says, avoid these people. These people will lead you astray. Don't follow them. Don't follow their teaching. Don't follow their example. But then in verse 10, verse 10 he says, but as for you, Paul says, you, you followed me. He'll say it again in verse 14. He'll say, as for you. And look what he's telling him. Verse 14. Continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you firmly believed. Remembering or knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings able to make you wise for salvation. He says, remember what you know. Remember what you believed. Remember what you told him, what you've been taught. You see what Paul's saying to Timothy. Essentially, he's telling him, Timothy, keep going back to the book. Keep going back to the book. All these other voices, all these other thoughts, all these other teachings would lead you and are leading people astray. Paul's telling Timothy, go back to the book. Go back to the book. He says, remember what you heard and believed. Remember what you've been taught. Timothy grew up in a household that believed in the Bible, believed in God's word. Not his father necessarily, but certainly his mother and his grandfather. If we went back to the beginning of 2 Timothy, it would talk about his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice who raised him, teaching him the words of Scripture. Remember what you heard and believed. Remember who you heard it from. He'd been raised in the book. And of course, he had traveled with Paul, the apostle. He learned it from Paul, that great teacher and apostle himself. He says, remember what you learned and who you heard it from. That's powerful. At least it could be. I hope that can be said of my children someday. I hope that if my children are struggling someday, that it could be said to them, remember, remember what your parents taught you. Remember how you were raised. You, you, you had every opportunity and did hear God's word. Well, wouldn't that be the case in all of our homes? Right? Would it be the case someday that when Leah Hines grows up, it can be said, you, you know what Eric and Rachel taught you. You know how they raised you. You know how they spoke God's words into your life. Right? We go around the room. Maddie Koch grows up someday. It can be said to her, you, you know. You know what your parents, Jeff and Jennifer, taught you. You know how they pointed you to God's word. Well, may that be said in, in all of our homes. It's powerful. It matters. What we've been taught in the past and who taught it to us is, is significant. But we need more than that to go back to the book. We need more than just remembering what we've taught and who taught it, because that's not necessarily enough. Uh, several years ago, Kelly and I went with her sister and, and brother-in-law over the Christmas holidays to Hawaii, and we, were, uh, we got on the flight in Los Angeles to fly to Maui, and uh, the, the girls were sitting in the row in front of us, and my brother-in-law and I were sitting, and there was three seats in the aisle, and he was by the window, and I was in the aisle, and, and uh, this young guy came, and, and his seat was right between us. And uh, his family was sitting, and the rest of them were all sitting several rows in front. And so as he sat there, he was 20 years old, and we got to talking. And he, uh, just starting his first year of college, Brigham Young University. 
and he had been two years on his, his Mormon mission to South America, and he came and sat between us, sharp kid, really nice kid, and we got talking about his, where he was, he was down in, in Chile in South America, and we got talking about that, and asking lots of questions, and you could tell this guy is a nice guy, very smart, very polite, just the, the, kind, of, the kind of 20-year-old son in, in so many ways that you would want to have. In fact, we told his dad that on the way out. But we're sitting there asking, I'm asking lots of questions, and my brother-in-law is asking questions, and finally the kid's like, uh, I don't remember what he said, but it was something effective, well, what, what is, kind of, who are you guys? And my brother-in-law's like, well, you're sitting between a Baptist deacon and a Baptist pastor, so that's what your next five hours look like. And, um, and so... We're, we're sitting here talking and asking questions, and, and I'm trying to be polite but, but probe a little bit, right, uh, into some beliefs that are clearly uh, some, several rooted in history but are very dubious and things about the, the Book of Mormon and such. And, and uh, so he, and he had answers, not great answers, but, I, but answers for, for lots of things, and he was very confident. When I started asking questions, he reached right into his backpack, pulled out his Book of Mormon, pulled it out and started talking about it. He'd very comfortable very willing to talk to the Baptist deacon and pastor on either side of him about what it is that he believed. Really an impressive kid. He'd been, been taught since he was young by his parents. His dad was some kind of lawyer in Salt Lake City, and the family was going to Maui for the holidays. And, and um, I thought about that afterwards, and I thought about the fact that it was really a great, great young man, taught well by his parents since a young age, but, but taught a false gospel he very well could say, I, I remember what I was taught, and I remember who taught it to me. But the words that he were taught mostly were not God's words. Taught by good people, but taught the wrong book. Paul reminds Timothy of what he's been taught and, and who taught him. But the thing that will cement Timothy's faithfulness to the book is not the words of Paul or of his grandmother Lois or his mother Eunice. The important truth that, that compels him to stick with the scriptures is what Paul says in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out, not by Paul, not by Eunice, not by Lois. All scripture is breathed out by who? God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Or many of us memorized that in the King James years ago. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that's a good word too, if, if we understand inspiration right. Because sometimes we use inspiration in a lesser kind of way. You know, an actress will uh, perform in a movie and will say it was an inspired performance. Or someone will write a book and will say it's an inspired book because it was just so thoughtful and well-written. Um, but Paul's saying more than that when he says inspiration, when he says God breathed. He's saying that the words of the Bible are, in fact, God's own words. They are God's words. We might say it this way. Or we might not. Ah, oh, that's what we would say. What the book says, God says. What the book says, God says. I don't mean by that that every word of the book is a quote from God. Clearly, people speak in the book, and in one case, an animal speaks in the book, and the, the devil speaks, and there's lots of things going on in the book. But, but the words in the Bible, 
The book that we have that is the Bible is God's book. It's his words. That's why often we'll talk about the Bible, we'll say God's word. It's not a collection of people's thoughts about him. It's not merely, as many have said, just a a record of the history of Israel or of the early church. What the book says, God says. It is his words. Now, this isn't a novel teaching. The apostle Peter, like Paul, says the same thing. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, he says this, Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of the scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Like no prophecy is, you know, a prophet in the Old Testament with someone who speaks for God. God gives him a message. And he says, look, none of the scriptures, none of the scriptures are a prophet sitting down going, what? What message would I like to give to the people? False prophets, right? False prophets would do that. But no, I say no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as the Spirit carried them along. Now look, the human authors were really writing. They wrote in their language, they used their vocabulary, they stressed themes and ideas that were pressing on their heart and mind. They, didn't, they weren't writing with their eyes rolled back in their heads and just you know, waiting to see themselves what words would come out. But the Holy Spirit so superintended and guided their writing that at the end, the words they chose to write were exactly the words God wanted them to write. They're writing God's words. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly how that worked. We don't know what it felt like for those human writers to be writing, what they were thinking exactly as they did this, how exactly the Spirit guided them to write. But we know that he did. We don't want to make the Scriptures too divine. We don't want to say that They were just, everything was written by dictation. No, they were really using the terms, vocabulary, and writing in the genre, all these things that they knew. But we don't want to make it too human. That's the more common mistake, which is to say, well, it's just a record. The Bible is just a record of what people think about God may or may not be true. No, it is, in fact, God's words. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you say, I don't know any other book that works like that, that men are writing as they want to write, but, but God is superintending it, so it ends up being God's words. And you're thinking, I don't know any other book that works like that. And you'd be right, neither do I. I don't know any other books that work like that either. That's why we've got to go back to this book. It is God's word. What the book says, God says. It's his word. And, and I want to see this morning three implications for our understanding of the book this morning that come from this. And, and they're related to each other, as we'll see. So, Here's the first one. Because it's God's word, the book must be authoritative. It must have authority. The prophets in the Old Testament, God's spirit would come on them and they would speak a message. They'd they'd stand up and they'd say, Thus saith the Lord. And, and that immediately changes things, right? So you got a prophet, and he's talking, interacting with people, and they're joking about what they did yesterday and talking about the football game and all this kind of stuff. And then, then the Spirit comes in, and all of a sudden something changes. Whoa, okay, stop. Thus says the Lord. What the prophet's about to say is God's own word. God's Spirit impressing, giving him a message. Say this to my people. When the prophet spoke... It was God's own word and carried God's authority. No one could come to the prophet and say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You're not my favorite prophet. 
I have other prophets I like better. No, no. When the prophet spoke, it was God speaking. It carried, it was God's word carried his authority. So, so what we see then is that we open the book, as we go to the Bible, we could rightly begin our reading by saying, thus says the Lord. This is God's word, we often say. It carries his authority. So rightly interpreted, the Bible has authority over us. We can't go to, say, Exodus 20 and read in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And we say, well, Moses, Moses thought we shouldn't commit adultery. No, no, God says don't commit adultery. God says don't steal. God says don't murder. God says don't covet. It's God's word. It carries his authority. God expects us to believe and obey his book as though in it he were speaking to us because in it he is. Earlier this, in our service, we read Jeremiah 36. The Spirit comes on Jeremiah and tells him, hey, listen, go write down, tell your, your scribe, Barak, tell him what to write. This is the message I want him to write, and then take it to the temple. And when all the people are there, read it. Read this message, warning them. So Jeremiah says, maybe, maybe they'll hear the words of judgment that God is going to send, and they'll repent, and maybe God will relent and spare the people. And of course, he goes and reads it, and, and the officials, you kind of get the, kind of the cabinet around some of these leaders, particularly the religious leaders, they hear the message, and they say, whoa, where did you get, did, did, is this exactly what, did Jeremiah tell you to write this? Yes, okay. <laughs> Go hide, <laughs> right? We're going to take this to the king. He has to hear it. Now, we saw just a couple weeks ago that a similar thing happened to Josiah, this king, Jehoiakim's father, and Josiah tore his clothes and repented. And what happens to Jehoiakim? The officials bring it to him, and they start reading it, and after they get a little bit more done, he cuts it off with his knife and throws it in the fire. They read a little more, and he cuts it off. It's like, I don't have any use for this. And the officials are like, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. What happens at the end? Well, judgment's pronounced on Jehoiakim. You will certainly die and be judged. But you know what else he says? He says to Jeremiah, okay, just write the words again. Just write them again. We read them today. 2,600 years later, we read them. Jehoiakim's long gone, despised, and forgotten. God's word's not. You can't destroy it. It has authority. You can cut it up and burn it, but it's not going away. God's word has absolute authority. Because it's God's word, because it's breathed out by him, it must be authoritative. Secondly, it must be true. It must be true. This is a necessary implication of the fact that Scripture is breathed out by God. Because God cannot lie. He cannot be mistaken. He knows all things. And because the book is God's word, it is inevitably true. The term we commonly use for this is the term inerrancy. It is not errant. It is inerrant. There is no error. Now that term is controversial, and to be fair, we need to define it carefully. But at the very least, it means this. We never read something in the Bible and say, well, that's mistaken. Oh, that's not right. That's not true. Well, Paul may have thought that, but Paul was mistaken. Or Paul was a product of his age. And he probably simply reflecting the beliefs. No, no. The Bible is without error. We'll think more about this next week. It must be true. Secondly, or thirdly, 
the book must be profitable or useful, some translation. That's what Paul goes on to say. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's useful. It's valuable to us. It's easy to see how that follows. How can it not be profitable to know what's authoritatively true? It's good to know what the truth is, isn't it? It's foolish, we say, people who are delusional and ignore or deny the truth. It's profitable to know what's true. Isn't that what we need? And and he's going to go on to give four things, four ways that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Uh, The first two of those have to do with our beliefs. Teaching is, is profitable for having the right beliefs, and then the second one, reproof, for correcting wrong beliefs. The second two have to do with our behaviors, for correcting wrong behaviors and training us in right behaviors. So over the next four weeks, we're going to consider each of these four things. This morning, I want to think with you for a few minutes as we finish this morning about the first of these. Because it's God's word, it is profitable for teaching, or we could say for doctrine. Scripture is profitable to us because as the authoritative and true word of God, it tells us what we should know and believe about God, ourselves, and the world in which we live. It, it gives us the true perspective. It tells us how things really are. You know, we have a statement of faith here at Springview, you know, the Baptist faith and message. It's several pages long, and it kind of defines our beliefs, our principal beliefs and doctrinal commitments, but that isn't really our authority We could change that. That's simply our expression of what we think the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible we're not going to change. That will always be the standard. The Bible has authority. It is profitable, useful for us. The next week we'll consider how the book protects us from false teachings, false beliefs, and and what some of those might be. But I'm going to finish this morning thinking about what I think might be the most significant threat to the Scripture's authority in our lives. Look down at the next chapter, chapter 4. Paul makes this great assertion at the end of chapter 3. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for all these things. It equips the man of God for every good work. So, chapter 4, verse 1, he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, this is serious, and of Christ Jesus, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. That's the fundamental task of the minister of Christ. The fundamental task is teach the word. That's what people need. Bring them back to the book and explain what it means. Because, verse 3, the time's coming when people will not endure sound Teaching, that's the same word we had in chapter 3, verse 16, that it's profitable for. They won't endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. People won't endure sound teaching. Why? Why would you want anything else? Why would you not endure sound teaching? 
End of last month, our family went up to Houghton in the far end of the UP to visit my grandparents, who are, are quite elderly. They're both in their 90s. My grandpa will be 94 next Sunday. And he's in, for 94, he's in really good, really good health. But, but suppose for a moment that he wasn't. Suppose for a moment that he was not in good health. And while we were up there with all the activity and all the busyness, we're going around and finally he just starts to complain. I don't feel well and tired and I'm short of breath and I'm just not well. And finally we're like, you should, we need to take you to the ER. We're going to take you in and have you looked at. So we, we take him into the ER and they do a bunch of tests and they finish up and they bring him back and they bring, you know, the family in and they're like, uh, Mr. Patterson, uh, like, I hate to tell you this, but you've got a number of things going on. You've got you know, blockage in your heart and yeah, fluid on your lungs and a tumor in your abdomen, and there's, there's some pretty serious stuff going on here. My grandpa says, stop, stop, stop right there. Stop, I'm, I'm not paying you for that information. I, that is not correct. I will not pay you for that bad news. I'm out of here. We said, Grandpa, come on. No, I'm out of here. And off he goes. So we get outside. He's like, I, I want another opinion. So we say, well, I mean, we've been to the hospital in Houghton. I guess this bigger hospital in Marquette. We'll go to Marquette. So we drive two hours down to Marquette, and subjected to the same battery of tests, and call him in and call us in and say, Mr. Patterson, it appears you've got some blockage in your heart and some fluid on your lungs and a tumor in your abdomen, and um, you, you need some, you've got some pretty serious health issues. He stop. Stop. I I will not pay you for that information. That is incorrect. That is not what's going on. You need to stop right there. And out he goes. And we follow him. We say, Grandpa, come on. Grandpa, it, it, the, both hospitals said the same thing. Right? They it the same thing. Clearly, you've got some things going. No, no, no. Uh, I want another opinion. Let's go to Green Bay. All right, well, that's the next closest big hospital. So we drive down there and we're just, oh, what are we doing? What are we, why are we doing this? And we get down there. They subject him to a bunch of tests, and the doctor walks in, and he starts talking. My grandpa says, stop, listen, I'm not going to pay you any, I'm not going to pay you a dime if you tell me I have blockage in my heart, fluid in my lungs, or a tumor in my abdomen. The doctor says, well, what would you like me to tell you? I'd like you to tell me I'm fine. Okay, Mr. Patterson, you're fine. Grandpa says, okay, pay him. And we'd say, what? Grandpa, what? grandpa, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he says, no, listen, I know my body. I know what's going on. What those other doctors said is false. It's wrong. They don't know. I know. We'd say, no, Grandpa, you, you, actually, you don't know. You don't know. You can't see what they see. You don't know what they know. You're not a medical professional. You don't have any medical authority. You're actually very ignorant of what's going on. I know you can feel things, but you don't know what's going on. You need someone with some medical authority to tell you what's actually going on with your body. We think it was remarkably foolish to say, I'm not going to accept the words, I'm not going to pay a doctor until he gives me the diagnosis I want to hear. So that's ridiculous. That's the opposite of why you go to the doctor. But Paul's saying to Timothy, the day's coming, and frankly it's here, when people will go to church or they'll go to a teacher and they'll listen to a taught, and they'll say, I'm not going to give you a thing. I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not going to give you any attention. I'm not going to do anything you say unless you tell me what I want to hear. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And the result is they turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myths. The biggest challenge to the authority of God's word in your life is probably you. It's usually you. Because God's word comes to us and it tells us what God is really like. And we would change things about God if we could. And it tells us what we're really like. And there's things about us that we don't want to hear. And if we can find, if we can find someone to tell us what we want to hear, we will. I'll listen to that teacher. I'll go to that church. I'll embrace that doctrine because I'd much rather hear that about myself, that about God. Don't give me any bad news. That's foolish. And we would be critical of my grandpa if he was that kind of patient. We'd be critical of someone who was that kind of religious customer. But look, you and I can be like that. Very easily. The biggest competition for the Scripture's authority in our life is usually us. I don't want to hear that. That's demanding too much. That feels too costly. I treasure this pet sin too much. I'm too invested in these values and these life priorities to, to subject them to the priorities and values of the kingdom. We, we think, well, God, do, God doesn't really know. God's word doesn't know best about me or life or this world. I, I do. I do. The biggest competition of the Scripture's authority in your life is usually you. We like to be, several years ago, I probably told you about this, several years ago, I overheard the kids playing, Aubrey was probably six or seven, Evie was five, and they were playing a game, and Aubrey said, okay, so I'm the charger, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, whoa, whoa what, what is the charger? The charger is the person who's in charge. I said, oh, well, I, I see how you did that. And the truth is, we, we all want to be the charger, we don't want someone else to be our charger. I don't want Karen to be my charger. I don't want Dave to be my charger. I don't want Jeff to be my charger. I don't want the book to be my charger. I want to be the charger. And so we, we all fight that every day. And here's one of the ways we'll deceive ourselves. I'll read the book, and I'm going to agree at a nine out of ten things. And we say, yep, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then the tenth one comes. And I say, well, hold on, <laughs> That particular one, I'll be the charger. On that particular issue, I will be the charger. And this is what happens. Rather than sitting under the book as its authority, we sit over the book. The old churches, maybe you've been to some of these or seen pictures of them, the old Puritan churches, especially in New England and England itself, the, the congregation would be seated out here in pews, and sometimes they'd have a, a pulpit that would go way up, I mean, 10, 15 feet above the congregation. So it's, you imagine my head up by the ceiling there. And, and it wasn't because the preacher was vain. It wasn't like he's trying to get a better angle for the television cameras. They, they were trying to spatially communicate something. In this high and lofty space stands the messenger who speaks God's word as the people sit under the word, humbly. We receive the word. We don't sit over it. 
For a couple decades, a group of scholars met, they called themselves the Jesus Seminar. And they, their purpose was to go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and figure out what parts of it were true and what parts of it weren't true. Right? Because now, in this modern age, we know that lots of things it says couldn't possibly be true. Like virgin birth, <laughs> we know that is impossible. Right? We know that's all these miracles. <laughs> what did Jesus really say? And so they had a, a, a mechanism by which they, um, uh, as the story goes, they, they would evaluate a particular portion of one of the Gospels, and then they would have a, a series of colored beads that would indicate how certain any individual scholar thought this, is this authentic? Right? So say you get the story of Jesus um, walking on the water, right? And so I'm going to make up the colors, but it's like, you know, the, the, uh, the white bead is, yes, absolutely, 100% confident this is real. Uh, and then, on, you know, several layers down to the black bead says no way. And so they would, they would work through it, they'd talk about it, and then they'd pass around a jar and you'd put whatever bead color you thought you know, how certain you were it was or wasn't in the Gospels. And in the end, you'd tally up all the beads and figure out whether, is this, is this probably, you know. And so all the miracles basically go away. All the hard teachings that are difficult for modern people to accept, they go away. And you end up with a Thomas Jefferson-like Gospel, truncated and cut away, because what you have is a group of scholars standing over the word saying, we'll, we'll decide what parts are real and authentic and what parts aren't. Now, we, we hear that and we say, that's terrible. That's terrible. What kind of, but, but we can be that way. Again, nine out of ten times we won't know. The things we agree with and like, yes, yes, absolute authority. Everyone needs to listen. But, man, sometimes that tenth thing will come, and it'll lean on us. And our temptation is to get around and stand. I want to get up above and say, I'm going to stand over this. I don't think this is legit. Or I don't think it's important enough for me to actually change who I am and what I'm doing. That temptation is there for all of us. What do we need to do? put ourselves under the book. We, we talked at the end last week, Isaiah 66 too. God says, this is the one I pay attention to, the one who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humbly under the book, trembling at it, hearing it and receive it, like, like these scribes and religious leaders in, in Jeremiah's day who hear the book and they're afraid and they say, we've got to tell the king, maybe the people will turn and follow God. And it goes to the king and his closest officials. And you notice what it said? They weren't afraid and they didn't tear their clothes. It didn't bother them. Because they're up over the book. Throw in the fire. That's not how we want to be. In every way, in every part, we want to sit under the word, humble and contrite in spirit, trembling at it. No, it confronts me in my sin. It confronts me in my false belief. And I say, I've got to change because the words of the book are God's words. It carries his authority. Listen, as we finish this morning, here's, here's one of the ways that we avoid the authority of Scripture. We just avoid the book. We just, we just avoid it. We don't bring it into our lives. We don't bring it into our thoughts, into our hearts. We, just, we have such little exposure to it, right? We come and we hear it on Sunday morning, and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, right, I should. I ought to, and then, and then we go on through a week, and then we come back next Sunday, and we go, oh, yeah, I should, I ought to, I should listen, believe. It. One of the biggest ways we put ourselves under the authority of God's word is we read it. We just read it. 
We relentlessly read it, read it and go back to it over and over. If you don't have a way to do this, yeah, let me recommend a way. Our new Learning Christ Together reading calendars for October are out this morning. And, and what we're doing in here is encouraging you to read God's Word. There's typically one chapter per day. Um, there's not a, a complicated set of questions to answer. It's just we, we want to sit under God's Word. We want to sit under it regularly so that it begins to move us and affect us and change us. The biggest competition to the Scripture's authority in your life is going to be you. And if God's Word isn't speaking into your life, you and your resistance, your temptations, your sins will speak loudly and overwhelm Scripture's words. We have to go to it again and again. The book has authority, and we need to put ourselves relentlessly under it. Father, I pray for us. Lord, we, we would never think that if you were somehow to, to bodily come here that, and tell us what we should do or should believe or how we should act, that we think, well, we would, we would certainly listen, we would certainly obey, and yet we, we have just as sure a word here in the book. And how quickly we, we sit ourselves in judgment on it. We, we rationalize our disobedience. We, we rationalize our ignoring it. And it doesn't possess in our lives the authority that it should. And so, Father, I pray as, as individuals, as families, as churches, that we would relentlessly, purposefully put your book in front of us regularly, that we may sit under its authority, that we may hear its words as your words, words that are authoritative and true and profitable. Father, how much we need your words. Give us a hunger for them. Give us a supernatural desire to read your word and embrace it, believe it, obey it. For your glory, for our joy in you, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, let me thank you uh, again for coming this morning. It's been good to be here and to sit under God's word with you. Let me remind you of a couple things as you go. One is together groups start tonight, and uh, if you haven't signed up for one yet, I strongly encourage you to, to sign up uh, on the other side of Kevin Brown's wall out there uh, before you leave this morning. Also, uh, David Brown uh, has uh, reminded me that, that Janie is set up there we, uh, several weeks ago I uh, was set up there with petitions. The Right to Life has a petition drive to end dismemberment abortion uh, in Michigan, and uh, I want to encourage you to support that. And those, uh, uh, there's a table set up by the front doors there, and Janie's out there, and you can um, sign. If you did not sign last time, don't sign it again. But if you didn't sign it last time, let me encourage you to, uh, to go out and sign that petition. And uh, uh, Lord willing, we will see you in one of our uh, together groups tonight or this week. But God bless you. Spend some time encouraging and spend uh, fellowshipping with one another. Thank you.